0: Ever need something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit aarons.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Looking for an easy switch to improve your pet's health? Darwin's customized meals for dogs and cats tailored to their needs. Darwin's Farm Fresh Human Grade Foods are truly raw with high protein and no fillers to support their ancestral diet. Delivered fresh to your door, talk about easy. Better food means a longer, happier life together. Shinier coat, improved digestion, difference you'll see. Try 10 pounds for just 14.95. Darwinspet.com. Feed them what they were born to eat. I just got a pair of barefoot shoes boots They're different, man. They're they're wide and they're flat-soled, made of really high-quality leather, and it is a unique feel on the foot. I like them. They're unique because they give you the ability to feel the ground as you're out in the field as most hunting boots have a thicker outsole which disconnects you from the terrain. Use code BEAR at barefoot.store to receive 10% off your purchase. That's BEAR, B-E-A-R,
1: foot.store. Use code BEAR. Started talking to people, told them that I was, uh, I was a bricklayer from Tennessee that recently moved here. My wife got a job in Hot Springs, and I, I like to do a little turkey hunting. And I actually asked the guy, Hey, if, if you had the best turkey hunter around here, who would it be? I'd like to talk to somebody about turkey hunting. He said, You need to talk to Louis Dale.
0: On this third part of our Genuine Outlaw series, we're going behind the veil into the realm of the covert operations of the government. In a strange twist, we were able to get an interview with the federal undercover officer who worked a sting operation on Louis Dell Edwards in the 1990s. The Edwards brothers, Charlie and Louis Dell, were notorious turkey hunting violators, moonshiners, and could be straight up rough men, but were also beloved, respected men known for their honesty, genuine nature, and generosity. Some even describe them as pure. I grew up knowing these men and am in a process of personal exploration of why I am endeared to them. We'll spend half of our time with this secret agent and the second half with Dr. Daniel Roop as he lays out for us the anthropological foundations of why Western culture is enamored with outlaws. This whole series, I've been trying to make sense of why we're often endeared to these guys who don't play by the rules, and its origins will surprise you. Of all the dadgum bear grease podcasts we've ever made, this one, I doubt you're going to want to miss. And hey... If you haven't listened to the first two parts of this series, which were bio sketches of the Edwards brothers, you might be lost with some of these characters, so be sure to listen to part one and two.
1: Ego is a very bad thing in the world of, of hunting. And uh, this particular group, obviously, the information I heard about them is they were very ego-driven in their, in their taking of animals. They mm. wanted to be the, the, uh, the ones that couldn't be caught.
2: Ludell told a and, story, and I heard this one strictly from Ludell's mouth. He was at the house one day, and a guy shows up at his house. And Ludell said, a big old tall. He said, a nice-looking guy, strong built. And he said, he knocked on his door, and he went to the door, and, and Ludell said, uh, hey, man, what can I do for you? He said, I heard you're a turkey hunter. He said, I'm from Tennessee. And he said, I stopped down by the Big Fork store, and asked around, and they said, you're the guy that would take me turkey hunting. This is Two or three weeks for season. And Louis says, Well, you know, it's not see. He said, I don't care. He said, If you take me here. he said, If can you take me? He said, Sure, I'll take you turkey hunting. And he said, Well, you be over here at four thirty in the morning. And he said next morning, no boy was there at four thirty. And Louis said, He gives the boy some because they they talked and everything. He said he was the best he ever heard on a turkey call. Hm with a mouth call. He said he was the best he ever heard.
0: The best he ever heard. I'd like to introduce you to a man named Russ Arthur. That's his real name, but he hasn't always used it. Russ is now 63 years old, and in the 1990s, he was in his early 30s. Oddly, he fits the description to the T that Louis Dell gave of this Tennessee turkey hunter. Russ is about six foot two and kind of built like a retired 1980s WWF wrestler. And by my best estimation, and at least by one other hillbilly, he's a nice looking feller. When you meet him, you're struck by his genuine nature, and he can't hide that he's as country as cornbread. Turns out he's an incredible voice mouth caller, no doubt one of the best I've ever heard. It's kinda spooky. So you can you mouth call like with your physical voice? Uh sometimes if yeah. I wanna hear your barred owl hoot. <laughs> you gotta yelp? <laughs> that's just with his mouth, that's not a call. <laughs> It's slightly unnerving sitting here talking to Russ after hearing Louis Dale's description of this strange man oddly appearing at his house in Arkansas. The Russ I'm talking to is a real man, clearly a real turkey hunter, he's a real bricklayer, and he's really from Tennessee. Louis Dale and I talked to the same guy, but back then he wasn't Russ, he was someone else. You see? Russ worked his entire career for the United States Forest Service Law Enforcement Division. And in the 1990s, he worked a stint of that time in Arkansas. He said it was one of the most memorable parts of his career, but he's been retired for almost a decade. After I did the first episode in this series, I had someone privately contact me and say, nobody in the community knows this, but I know the undercover agent who worked the case on Dell." I was giddy. I was able to contact Russ, drive eight hours to where he lived, and he agreed to talk to me as long as we didn't speak negatively about the Edwards family because he respected them as people. There were at least two undercover operations with the Edwards brothers, but none of it fully revealed until now. Here's Andy with more of what Louis Dell told him about the incident.
2: But he said, Got ready to go. Lydell well, said, Get your gun. And the old boy said, Well, where's your gun? He said, Well, don't you worry about it. If turkey gobbled this morning, he said, I'll find a gun. <laughs> but he loads him up and dropped him off and picked him up back east down there that morning. But they'd sent they'd sent that Lydell said, They sent that old boy in there trying to trying to get me to mess up. Mm, so that, did, uh,
0: did he know the whole time that he was entertaining a, a undercover well, guy?
2: He suspicioned it the whole time.
0: He suspicioned it the whole time, Andy recalled, but he may not have come up with this completely on his own, and some details will point to that he didn't suspicion it the whole time at all. Turns out Louis Dell had some help from the community, but you'll have to wait to find out how. You remember retired Arkansas Game & Fish game warden Jimmy Martin from part one of the series. Here he is giving us some broader context into the undercover operations on the Edwards brothers.
2: There were several operations over several years where we would have, like I say, people from uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service, U.S. Forest Service, different undercover agents would come in and... Uh,
0: how, would, how would they get their name? I mean, would it be like... How would they get Louisdale's name? Yeah. My
2: supervisor... And we communicated with Fish and Wildlife and Forest Service all the time. We we used undercover agents all the time, not just on Louisdale or we, they'd be used all over the state on different things like striper fishermen. We used them on on when the whites were running up the river for netting people that were netting fish, illegal bear hunting. The big one for my supervisor was Louisville and Charlie. He wanted those people caught. He wanted you know to be the one that. Look at me! I'm, I caught Louie Dale. Well, look, look at me—we never did make it.
0: <laughs> the most interesting part of all these interviews is hearing the different angles into the same story. We might be surprised to learn that they could have busted Louie Dale. This next 20-minute interview with undercover agent Russ Arthur is one of the most unique I've been a part of. It was like talking to a ghost, to a man that didn't really exist. It was so interesting because I heard multiple stories of the brothers suspecting they'd entertained undercover agents, but none of the agents ever surfaced, as they say in the business, until now. Here's retired Forest Service law enforcement agent, Russ Arthur.
1: What years were you in Arkansas? I was in Arkansas 90 to 95. So I would have been 11 years old when you were over there. <laughs> I think I remember seeing you. <laughs> <laughs> You're you are riding the were, Mew. You <laughs> was riding the Mew. I think he's uh, a- actually riding it backwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 90
0: to 95. How would people get selected to have a job done on them? They, they would just have notoriety inside the communities. Then the local guys couldn't catch them. I mean, is that, is that how it would work?
1: Well, that's part of it. But, you know, when I moved to Arkansas, you know, keep in mind, my number one job was not undercover work. Okay. Uh, It was just a probably 15, 20 percent of my work that I did when I was in Arkansas was undercover. A lot of it was just, you know, overt investigations of crimes on federal land, on Forest Service land, whether it be in the drug world or the, the timber theft world or the wildfire arson world. So, you know, I was a criminal investigator that investigated all crimes out there. And occasionally, information would come in that we've got a need for an undercover operation. And there's several things that you have to look at. And I had a supervisor that was, that was very familiar with that state. But information would come up through the field level, either through other agencies or through our own agency, of a need for potential undercover and then there were litmus tests he would go through to see and sit down, and we'd say, hey, do we need to do this? Is it worth while spending time on this? How egregious is it? Yeah. You know, all those things yeah. you have to go in. Is it is it dangerous? Is it something that's going to take a week? Is it something that's going to take two years? So you yeah. have to look at that. But a lot of that is word of mouth through communities, yes.
0: So the local game wardens probably would have, it just would have gone up the chain in the game and fish that, these brothers were killing more turkeys than they should have.
1: Oh, yeah. I heard about these particular individuals for, for a year or two when I was out there. Okay. From the game wardens and from the local Forest Service officer.
0: Okay. That, uh, Do you remember what they said? Did they give numbers to how many birds they were killing or anything?
1: No, the uh, the only thing that I remember is these guys are killers and, you know, they need to be stopped and nobody can catch them. Mm. And it, it became a very apparent to me, uh, and I'll still stand by this: that ego is a very bad thing in the world of, of hunting. I mean, I truly, truly believe believe that. And uh, this particular group, obviously, the information I heard about them is they were very ego-driven in their in their taking of animals. They mm. wanted to be the the uh, the ones that couldn't be caught.
0: They wanted to be the ones that couldn't be caught. This lines up perfectly with what we've heard everywhere else. To the
1: Edwards brothers, evading the law was a game. To me, I don't want to say it's comical, but I want to ask you something. If you're an officer, and let's say you and Joe are the only two officers in a 200,000-acre county, and 150,000 acres of that's federal land, 50,000 of that's private land that's got cattle, ranches, farmland, your phone's ringing off the wall. I've got a hawk that's dead over here. I've got this that's going over here. And you've got all this vast area over there. Is it really an achievement that you can allude to people that are that busy? Mm-hmm. You are obviously a good hunter. You, you, When you go in the woods, your senses go up. You know how to read a map. Let's say you're a pretty good navigator. You you've got a good sense of bearing, good sense of weather coming and going. Good sense of animal movement, you know where to go in and go out. It wouldn't be that hard taking what these officers are up against to elude them. Mm. So I I find it kind of comical because I don't think that the common people in communities realize what officers are up against. Yeah,
0: that's a mic drop comment from Russ. Game wardens can't work 24 hours a day. They have days off. They have limitations. And most of the time, they have to be reactionary and not proactive in enforcing the law. As a little context, the United States Forest Service Law Enforcement Division is commissioned to enforce the law on the federal lands on which they have jurisdiction. Much of the Edwards Brothers hunting was done on Forest Service land. I asked Russ why the Forest Service was tasked to try to catch them. And he said the state game agencies and federal law enforcement often work together on these type of projects, and they just felt like he'd be a good fit on this case. It was that simple. Here's Russ describing how the sting went
1: down. Do you remember, how did you engage the Edwards brothers? Okay. It was very well known when I was in Arkansas, within my workforce, if you will, that I was an avid turkey hunter. Hmm. So they obviously said, man, I think, I think you,
0: you're you the guy to go yeah. do this turkey yeah, deal. Yeah, I mean,
1: you know, you like turkey hunting. You understand turkey hunters. And, and I was like, well, you know, is, is he charging people to hunt on national forests? Well, no, I don't think he is. Uh, him and his brother, they just, they just kill everything they, they see. Well, why can't you catch him? Just can't catch them. Uh, well, is he, is, he, is he baiting? Well, I'm not sure if he's baiting turkeys or not. But uh, rumor has it, he does walk-throughs. He'll get dropped off one place, picked up another, and he, and he hides guns and stump holes. So you, you hear all these rumors. Uh, I think it would have probably been 92, probably maybe 93, and my supervisor came to me and he said, uh, do you want to give it a shot? You know, And I said, yeah, well, we'll give it a shot. And he said, well, let's, let's lay a plan out. And uh, uh, you know how the government is. You have to have a plan for everything.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I drafted up a pretty generic plan and he approved it, and uh, and and it consisted of you know playing on their ego. What I know about turkey hunters, they were uh, very territorial over their hunting area, mm-hmm. probably more so than than any other <laughs> group that I know. Mm-hmm. So I had an undercover truck, I had a Tennessee tag on it. About a m- month before that turkey season, I started going out scouting. In areas that I knew Louis Dell frequented hunting, knowing that he would probably see my truck, mm. just as a seed, if you will. I never ran into him in the woods, but I parked it at two or three different places, predominantly, that I knew that he would have to come by. Really?
0: What would you do when you went, would you actually walk out in the woods? And- oh, yeah,
1: I'd walk out in the woods, but I'd normally just turn around and watch my truck and see what vehicles came by, see if anybody slowed down and looked at it. And I had vehicles slow down and look at it. And you'd park it with the license plate Oh, the yeah, road. Where, you, where you could see it. Yeah. And uh, word would get out there somebody from Tennessee around here. Yeah. What's the name of the little store down there? Well, the Big Fork Mall is what they call it. Right. I ended up stopping. I stopped in there two or three times and just to get a Coke and a pack of crackers and uh, started talking to people, told them that I was a- I was a bricklayer from Tennessee that-, that recently moved here. My wife got a job in Hot Springs, and I, was- I like to do a little turkey hunting. And I actually asked a guy hey, if, if you had the best turkey hunter around here, who would it be? I'd like to talk to somebody about turkey hunting. He said, you need to talk to Louisdale. And I said, who's that?
0: You knew what he was going to say.
1: Yep. And I said, who? <laughs> you know, I said, well, who's that? And would he, he said, oh, yeah, he, he'll talk to you about turkey. He loves turkey hunting.
0: He, did, did, he, did this guy give you any intel that Louisdale was a violator? Yeah. No,
1: no. He just said he's a turkey hunter. Good turkey hunter. And I said, well, how do I get in touch with him? He said, well, here, I'll call him. And he called him. He picked up the phone and he called. And uh, he got him on the phone and put me on the phone with him. And, and he says, well, why don't you come up to the house? And he told me how to get to the house.
0: So he was real
1: open yes. to a guy from Tennessee. Yeah. Yes, he was. Was that surprising? Oh uh, Well, uh, I, I was hoping by then that his curiosity, had that he had already known there was somebody poking around. Because back then, everybody knew where everybody hunted. Yeah. And everybody knew what everybody drove in, in just his, a tennessee
0: tag back in there would have been super unusual
1: exactly and it and i knew that it was probably circulating around that community and, uh, and eventually it turned out that it was that mm-hmm. was the first thing so he, That was the first as the first thing he said when i pulled up in his front yard he says i wondered who that was <laughs> and uh, so we just started uh, you know having an exchange about turkey hunting yeah and i and i wasn't asking him where to hunt I, you know, I told him I was just a, an avid turkey hunter, and I'd like to hunt some of the areas. I understood he was one of the best in the area. You know, I would, by far didn't want to get into any areas that he hunted, but could he just give me some general advice on hunting turkeys in Arkansas? And he ate that up. Mm-hmm. I told him, I said, well, man, I would love to. I, I had some good friends I'd probably never get to hunt with again. And I know you probably got plenty of folks to hunt with, but if you ever get time, I'd like to hunt with you. And we exchanged phone numbers. And
0: uh, and you were a lot younger than him.
1: Yeah, I was probably about 10 years younger than him. I think. Okay. You know, we immediately had a connection there and, and everything. And every, that's how it got started. The story that Andy and
0: Russ both tell are incredibly similar, which is pretty wild considering the 30-year gap in Andy's story being secondhand. As Brent Reeves always says, if you want to get two different stories, ask two eyewitnesses to the same thing what happened. I'm amazed at how easily the details of stories can get messed up, but not so here. And hey, stick around until the second half of this podcast when Dr. Daniel Roop tells us why
1: we love outlaws.
0: Russ continues. And so you exchange phone numbers and then what happened?
1: Exchange phone numbers. Uh, I didn't want to be too pushy. Uh, I waited a week or two. Season was getting ready. It was about probably a week or two away. And I called him up. I said, look, I'm going to uh, come out scouting and, and do some listening. Do you want to go with me? He said, man, I ain't got, let's see, that first time he told me he didn't have time. And then he called me back. And he said, yes. He said, if you can do it, it was either like a Tuesday or a Wednesday. One of the, is in the middle of the week. I can do it the other day so he actually called me back and rescheduled the day so I went over there before daylight picked him up and we went out and he said I'll tell you what he said if he told me where to let him out I, he said I'm going to walk this ridge out show me on the map where you come out he said I'll walk this ridge out and he told me where to go listen and he said then you can pick me up and that's when I I, I knew that he was beginning to trust me he said now look When you pick me up, I don't want anybody to see me on the road. And when you pick me up, we drove the section of road I was picking up. He said, When you pick me up, there'll be a limb laying in the edge of the road, and you stop right there where that limb is, and I'll I'll jump out. I'll jump in the truck from there. He said, We don't need to let anybody see where we're getting in and out. I said, I understand that. So I didn't ask any questions, but that was just a scouting trip.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: That That was our first trip. He had heard a couple of birds, I didn't hear anything. And uh, I told him— So I, you
0: really went where you were supposed to go? Oh, yes. I went. So where you I was. came back, gave him a report?
1: Yep, come back, gave him a report. I didn't hear anything. Pretty country. What about you? And he was excited. He had heard a couple of birds. And I said, well, I said, do you think anybody would be hunting them opening day? He said, they may be hunting them opening day, but they may be dead before opening day. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> I said, I can understand that. <laughs> and I just said, if you need any help, let me know. mm."
0: If you need any help, let me know. It's hard to imagine the dynamics of what's going on here. Russ is trying to dupe a man that's extremely suspicious of the law and known for not getting caught. He's got to come across as genuine as he invites himself on an illegal preseason turkey hunt, which deep down, he disdains the activity. It's an interesting mental space. You see, Russ is from a real-deal turkey-hunting family from Tennessee. Let's step outside of this story, outside of this truck, for just a second. I have a personal question for Russ about his motivation for doing what he's doing. I want to understand what he's feeling at that moment, because it's not what he's letting on. What would you say your primary motivation inside of this because it's it's clear to me that you're you're a hunter yourself you're deeply connected to where you grew up hunting is it a love for wildlife is it uh, a love for justice what would you say would be a primary motivator for you inside of this
1: i guess you would have to say it's all wrapped up and what i mean by that was uh i was very fortunate to have a a mentor my dad who was very law-abiding very, very structured in uh, any and everything that he did. From growing up very little, we would hear about people that did other things. And, and I was taught, hey, respect this. And, and I was taught that it's, it's the hunt, it's not the kill. And, and I just always, I've always lived that. And in my opinion, when, when the kill becomes a more important thing, you know, you're, you're losing as a hunter. Uh, because there's a lot more things out there than the kill. And and to go in and see the the total disregard for 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 that to me it was despicable. I mean, it truly was.
4: Mm.
0: Very interesting. Now let's get back in the truck. Russ has just invited himself on a preseason turkey hunt, and things escalate quickly. For you as an undercover guy, this must
1: have been like this is music to your ears. Oh yeah. It, uh, but but you know there was a there was a lot of talk you know it, it, we spent five minutes here talking about it but you know we had talked on the phone we had talked in his yard we had talked the first time so you know then the second time he took a gun mm. and the best before I, season yes and the best I can remember I'm wanting to think it was an old single barrel but I really don't remember the gun. I tried not to pay a lot of attention to it. I didn't want to draw attention to it of me looking at it, staring at it, because it was four daylight, but I dropped him off and I picked him up. Did
0: he say much about it? He just got in a truck and he had a gun.
1: Right, said hey I hope this is okay with you. Hope we're not gonna get in trouble. I, you won't get me in trouble. I said, Look, I ain't gonna get you in trouble. You know, I'm just out here from Tennessee, you know. So he was all good with it. And I picked him up within a hundred yards of where I picked him up the first time. And I know he hunted that same ridge. Uh, he didn't kill a bird. We talked about it. He said they wouldn't work and, uh, and took him home, and that was that. Was that. Louis Dell left with the shotgun,
0: but when he returned, he didn't have it. He told Russ he'd left it up on the point of the ridge. This confirmed the brothers' strategy of hiding shotguns in the woods. And if you remember, Stoney Edwards told us that's how they evaded the law. Well, this time, the law was there. I honestly wished I had asked Russ if he ever felt any internal confliction working undercover, or perhaps remorse in playing someone in a good guy hustle. Working undercover is basically living a lie for a period of time for the greater good of the resource and justice. I know it's a dumb question, but in that truck, Russ fabricated a story to gain the authentic rapport from this man. I'm not saying it was wrong, it's just a genuine question. I'm pretty sure he would have said, absolutely not. And there are ethics involved in undercover work. Like you can't entice someone to break the law when they maybe wouldn't have if you weren't there. It's called entrapment. Like modern game wardens can't put a Boone and Crockett sized deer rack on a dummy deer on the side of the road. In that situation, your own dear sweet mama might even take a crack at that thing. Russ is now going to tell us how this thing finalized and fell apart, and it all went back to the community support that
1: Louis Dale had. Then this is when things got interesting. One other time we basically did the same thing in another area now you'll you'll hear people say that uh, he knew who I was this second time makes me know that I know he didn't know who I was.
4: Mm, Because
1: he took a gun. The second time, yeah. You know, the first time, most people are under the misconception that, hey, if he was a law enforcement officer, he had already busted me. Right. So here I am the second time. So to me, that, that, that kind of solidified that, you know, everything was good. Yeah. Now, same thing, didn't kill a turkey. I actually went back into the same areas that he hunted on by myself to look for corn. Never did find any corn. And now's when the, uh, the law enforcement structure of the Forest Service bit me.
4: Mm.
1: There was a person in the community that was close to Louisdale that got wind of my actions out there. Mm. Word got back from, from the community that this person within the Forest Service had been talking to Louisdale.
4: Mm.
1: And Louisdale himself told me, he said, you know, I was told I better watch out for you. Okay. And I said, "Well, man, I don't know why. You know, I don't know okay. why." <laughs> when he approached me about it, it was a, it was kind of like, "I've been told to look out, for, look out for you. You just, you just something, something just ain't right with you." I don't remember exact words. I've been told to watch out for you, and he just kind of slapped me on the shoulder like, "Like, I ain't worried about it. You're okay, you know." So mm. I felt pretty confident that the cover was still there. But do you want to continue and take the chance? You know. And, no, we weren't scared of him. I wasn't scared for my life. He wasn't that type of people. The family was not that type of people, in my opinion.
0: The danger would be that you're in a truck, and he gets mad at you, your cover gets blown, and he fights you or pulls a Whatever. gun. I mean, like yeah. physical something. Right,
1: right. We had at least four or five different charges we could tag on him, and there were very few people at that time that knew about the operation. And I, I still have not pinpointed exactly who it was, but I've got my suspicions. And and we tracked it down, and that's pretty much what the person told him says, you know, just be careful with that guy. And that's surprising because that's this particular person was ingrained in the community, and uh, there's still this mystique about protecting the outlaws in that community, you know. Incredible.
0: Russ got ratted out from the inside. There was a mystique about protecting the outlaws in that community. We're about to talk with Dr. Daniel Roop about why someone would do that. It's layered like an onion and fascinating. I thought it was very interesting that Russ never felt endangered considering the rough and tough past that we learned about these guys on part two. Here's Russ on what they could have prosecuted these guys on,
1: but what they chose to do. My supervisor and I sat down, and we did a review of, of of the evidence that we had. How long would
0: this whole thing have taken? A month? Yep, yeah, probably a month. So yes. you'd taken the truck over, you had right. done your you'd right. seeded the right. idea. A guy from Tennessee, right. gone to the gas station. Yep. This
1: is this is probably
0: five or six trips That's over right. in that country. Exactly.
1: And I wrote a report up on it. And my boss says, "You know, we can we can we can take this forward." He said, "But is it worth it? You know." You know, there's no commercialization. Nothing was killed. Is it worth surfacing, you know, who you are and what we did on such a minor infraction? You know, so that was, that is the very and only reason that we did not charge him federally. It it just wouldn't have gone very far. Oh, we would have, we would have prosecuted him. But for that level of violation, did you want to surface your identity as an undercover officer?
0: Yeah. And so you just kind of drifted. Out of this world.
1: That's
3: it.
4: Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for. From family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want. And mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code Eater because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being Eater. AuraFrames.com promo code Eater.
0: We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on Seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store. Or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.
4: O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online. So you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know, super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. You just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's
0: O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. This young mouth and turkey hunter from Tennessee just drifted out of Dell's world. Apparently, the tip and probably other stuff that happened gave Louisdale confidence to know that the guy was undercover. We know that from Andy's story. Here's Russ with a wild summary of small communities in the southern United States. I also want to state that Russ intentionally had not listened to either part one or part two of this series before this interview.
1: His conclusions are striking. Every small community whether it's Western Carolina, Southeast Tennessee, North Georgia, Ozarks, Ouachita's, you can take small county USA where there is a prevalent big game that's being hunted, and you will find that family. Whether it's bear, whether it's big deer, whether it's turkey, you'll find that family that everybody loves that nobody wants to tell on. Mm. So I've you think it. this is a common it's, scenario? It is. It truly is. Why do people love outlaws? I don't know. <laughs> like I said, I, I, to me, I think it's funny because just what type of person does it take to elude a game warden that's got 200,000 acres to patrol? Just beyond me. And you'll hear stories of they kill a lot of them, they never let anything waste, and, and they, would, they would feed other people. This is not the Depression times. Yeah. I don't buy that. You know, this isn't times where you have to hunt for your food. And, and here's the thing. I could give you family names right now of the of the Louis Dell Edwards in about six different states. Hmm. Boom, boom, boom. What are the characteristics of those people? Normally, uh, hardworking, God fearing. You'll see them in church, active in their community, very family oriented, just uh, down to earth, good people. What What is amazing? You you haven't listened to the podcast? No, no. And
0: you just wrote the script for who Louis Dell and Charlie were. But that's uh, for, uh, minus maybe a few of those components, but for the most part,
1: want to get along with everybody. <laughs> well, com- do any- well, do anything with any- for anybody. Very compassionate. I mean, that's very common. They're compelling people a lot yep. of times. Yep. And the thing about it is, if 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 you're if you're a non-hunter or even a, a part-time hunter, not as passionate as Edwards, and you look at somebody in your community with those characteristics, you don't want to get them in trouble. You know, if you're just looking at those characteristics without having the background and the, and the, of, a, of a resource management perspective, you, you don't see it as being a big deal if you're just a General Joe citizen. Mm-hmm. Because those are good characteristics for people to have in today's world, especially in today's world. So it would be very easy to be, you know, compassionate toward them.
0: I'll never forget interviewing Russ Arthur after hearing his description from Louisdale, albeit secondhand through Andy. This is a good time for us to all get caught up on what's been going on if for some reason you're just getting here. Our first two episodes were bio sketches of the Edwards brothers who lived in the community that I grew up in in the western Washita Mountains of Arkansas. Dell and Charlie were extremely colorful characters, beloved in the community by most, and I've been exploring why I like them. They were known as notorious turkey outlaws. When I heard the sting operation was ratted out by someone on the inside, I felt a tinge of guilt because I've already declared my endearment to these guys, but I don't think that endearment would have made me compromise my value system. I've told this story from an honest perspective. I've been in search of how I could be so full of irony paradoxes, and maybe straight-up hypocrisy. You may recognize this clip. It's from the opening scene of the acclaimed 1970 movie, The Godfather. We'll see a pattern here that is very relevant. I,
2: I went to the police like a good American. These two boys were brought to trial. The judge sentenced them to three years in prison and suspended the sentence. Suspended the sentence? They went free that very day. I stood in the courtroom like a fool. And those two bastards, they smiled at me. Then I said to my wife for justice, we must go to Don Corleone. Why didn't you go to the police? Why didn't you come to me first? What do you want from me? Tell me anything. What do, what I beg you to do.
0: For justice, I must go to Don Corleone. In this film, the common man, an immigrant to the United States, went through the courts for justice, the highest power in the land, but he couldn't find justice. He couldn't trust the powers on top. He had to turn to the mafia, to the outlaws who lived outside the systems of power. Here's Dr. Daniel Roop, an anthropologist and longtime hero of the Bear Grease podcast, to help me sort all this out. Dr. Daniel Roop, man, you know that inside of this series, I have been in an exploration of something inside of me that I know is inside of a lot of people that is this magnetic draw in some situations to be drawn towards people who push the envelope, break the law. I mean, you can't turn on television or Netflix without seeing these like rebels that we love. I, I don't know if that's an American thing fully or if that's a humankind thing, but why do we love outlaws?
3: Mm. They don't write movies about people who follow the rules. You know, we're not captivated by stories of folks who do. There's only (laughs)
0: one guy who ever did that. They made a movie, Mr.
3: Rogers. (laughs) So why do we love the bad guys? Yeah. Because in the West and specifically in the modern or the postmodern West, deep down, the bad guys are actually the people who are on top in power making the rules. Mm. We, we just, we don't trust them. We're not sure we like them. We really hope to get somebody in there that's kind of like us if we could, but we don't have a lot of hope in ever changing who's on top. So the bad guys, kind of the common man, the, the, the rebel doing as good as he can, you know, it's kind of like the Dukes of Hazzard, which you brought up in one mm-hmm. of the, that's really appealing to us because they're not really the bad guys. The real bad guys are the folks who are on top. And this kind Mm, of thing Boss hog. Boss hog. That guy. The ones that are in control of the resources, who are making the rules, who are kind of laying the playing field out. We're forced to play their game. And the folks who refuse to play that game are inherently our heroes. People who refuse to play the game or live by the laws
0: instituted by those on top, are often our heroes. This is getting interesting. And it's going to get more interesting when you hear the foundations of where this comes from in Western society.
3: And this whole line of thinking is actually, in the scope of human history, is actually relatively recent and has a little bit of... Really? Yeah. So it has a little bit of a surprising source. Even though today the kind of the the political and governmental structures that followed Karl Marx's thinking have in mass been basically objectively proved as irrevocably a failure, communism, mm. the vast majority of us view the people on top, the people in power, the people who have the resources and set the rules, we view them through a Marxist Lens hmm. that the way forward, the way for change, is for a revolt and for an overthrow. And Marx, when he was writing in the middle of like eighteen hundreds, almost immediately you saw in several European nation revolutions, all of which failed. Hmm. And so part part of the thinking back then was if you know if the common man could just gain power in mass and redistribute everything, communism. Then we'd all be great, and mm. who who knew that didn't go very well. Yeah. But nonetheless, that seed,
0: that that same seed of if the common man could have power, if the common man
3: could get into that place of power, he would know what to do. He would know, and and things would be made right. And the really the the way forward is the common man gaining power. So the way forward, or progress, or hope, or You know, you might say, salvation for any given individual is to revolt against whatever powers that be. If
0: the common man could gain power. This is fundamental to the understanding we're building about why we love outlaws because they are the common man that is fed up with the systems of power. Just like the guy that went to Don Corleone, the Godfather.
3: So you, you drove over here and you didn't you probably don't remember deciding to put on your blinker. You probably don't remember deciding to go a little bit over the speed limit, but not too much. But in every every single day you're engaged with law and you're thankful that it's there. But yet every single day you, like all the rest of us, feel injustice and oppression and disproportionately distributed, yeah. Marx would say, economic capital. You, you feel social and cultural capital and the, the pull on it and the tension for it and the competition for it. And so having a power up top that is evil and bad makes sense. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, of course, and we look at history, a lot of times the power up top is evil yeah. and bad. But then sometimes when you've got this bad game warden, He's not even a bad guy. And if you probably sit down to lunch with him, you probably actually really like him. Yeah. So then it's not him personally, but it's the system it's that the he, he, he works represents. for. So that's how th- these gentlemen like Louis Dell and Charlie, they can relate with this one game warden who genuinely, clearly, you can tell he cared for them. Yeah. And he did. But he kind of represents the system of law and he's doing his job. And they're representing another thing that society needs, which is individuals who make things a lot more simple and a lot more black and white. My life is super complicated. I've got rules to follow. I've got multiple bosses. I've got different social pressures and relational kind of strains. And all of a sudden, when I can look somewhat from afar, I'm not too closely associated with this particular outlaw. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I'm looking somewhat from afar and I see here's a person Who sees it like it should be seen, Mm. and they stand up against the man. Yeah, and they 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 may not follow every law, but there's a law there, their own kind of law, you know. And they're gonna follow. We we like that. that. We're just because deep down we kind of want to do that too, of course. And but we can't because we live in the real world. A lot more complicated. Just like the further you went on the biographical sketches of these gentlemen, they lived in a real world. And we would kind of like to think of them as the wonderful things that they did to the people around them and how they kind of gave it to the law and stuck it to the man. But they're also real people with messy lives. Just like you yeah, would like to. You know, absolutely. I thought it was kind of funny when you are like, wait a minute, he wore tennis shoes? Yeah. So we like to we like to project on individuals what we really wish we were, mm-hmm. and every single one of us, because we're enlightenment thinkers, and for us, postmodern enlightened quote unquote thinkers, we want to give it to the man. And Karl hmm. Marx articulated that. And that's an that. American thing or a Western thing. It's a Western thing. It is. It is a Western modern. So if thinking. we if we if
0: we did this story in a Chinese version. What would they think?
3: Well, the Chinese version would want a very a, a very powerful ruler on top that was far away. So there's a, a Cheng yu or a Chinese saying that translated to English means the emperor is high above and far away. Wow. So the emperor, he's there. He's high above. He's way above us. But thankfully, he's far away. So him being there provides stability. It, it, it provides security. But... He's far away, so we don't really have to interact with him a lot, but we want him there. Hmm. So this is why... So they wouldn't like an outlaw. They wouldn't like an outlaw, and the idea of a revolution would be entirely unsettling. Whereas most of our stories and songs, when you're talking about a little bit earlier in American history, think about like the 50s, the 60s, and 70s, I mean, everything's a revolution. And, And even now, today, we have society puts forth these causes or these movements that are revolutionary in nature yeah and if you don't everything's al- a revolution everything's and if you don't align yourself with one of them who are you why how could you not do that how could you not join that movement or how could you not because deep down people see revolution as the way forward there's a power in place that's corrupt and it needs to be brought down
0: there is a power in place that needs to be brought down. You may be asking yourself if you fit this description, and it's certainly a generalization that generally applies to Western culture. It would be stronger in some, but it pops up in some areas and not in others. You may not have a problem with slow traffic lights, but despise referees in basketball games. And if we're being honest in hunting culture, Game wardens are typically seen as the bad guy or the adversary, even though we all know this isn't true. They're the good guys. I am interested in the things that drive us and make us see life that we're completely unaware of. Yes. And that's why when I am intrigued and just love and kind of make heroes, Louis Dell and Charlie Edwards. Oh, yeah. From the time I was a kid, yet... I also knew that I was not permitted to be like them in 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 a lot of ways, sure. and that's bizarre. Yeah. So now that I'm adult, it's like, wait, how does this work?
3: Yeah. Hey, Dad. Hey, Gary. Tell me how this works again. So Juju would never have been okay with you oh. behaving like them, but you and Juju both look and recognize that the system is fallen, the system is is broken, the yeah. system is is unjust and to some degree corrupt and needs to be overthrown. And then you look across the other side of your hometown and you see these two guys who in their way are living outside the system outside the system and we're being controlled that we're being controlled by, being controlled by. <laughs> and you and i either don't have the guts or the means or life is actually more complicated than that and i look at these people and because i want someone who's outside the system i see that and in reality. They're probably still in the system. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But my mind makes an outlaw because I've lost faith in the law to begin with. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, these guys are my heroes even if I would never act like them or even yeah, if even if we would we would reject what they did, I mean, like we were never okay with somebody killing a bunch of turkeys in our home county. No, or or just even the idea of it seemed like every time there was the least little uh, altercation or or kind of argument with somebody, everybody armed themselves immediately with a yep. gun. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, I hope we're these are you, rough men. Yeah, you know, no kidding. You know, we would never do that. You know, just yeah. sheer firearm. Oh, we, we carry concealed. <laughs> we can, we have permits now for that. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, that kind of mindset. Listen to this. So so
0: Juju, bringing up Juju on I the Berrygris podcast. Didn't mean to bring up your mom. No, for real. The other day she she texted me and said, "Hey, we just found out that your like great great uncle something on the Newcomb side went to went to prison for moonshine. <laughs> it was like a new discovery in the Newcomb family. And, you know, they kind of started looking and now her dad went to juvenile jail when he was young for being a part of a moonshine operation. I remember. When he was like 16 or 17. Yeah. But on the Newcomb side, and and anyway, she literally wrote back, why are we proud of this? I mean, we don't, we're not into hard liquor. I mean, like, I'm I'm never going to make moonshine. I'm never going to live a lifestyle of moonshine drinking. But yet, for some reason, oddly, I like, want to tell people that. My great-great-uncle, Thomas Newcomb, went to prison for moonshine that's that's stupid that's bizarre hey dr d why'd you have to bring up my sweet mother juju in the outlaw episode how about we talk about your mom sorry juju the thing that makes us love outlaws is fundamentally a suspicion of power and people making the rules outlaws live outside the boundaries of the law and revolt against the system Deep in our cultural DNA is something that screams that this is good. It's stronger in some than in others. Dr. Dan is about to talk about suspicion of power in politics, and it's relevant because that mechanism is the exact same one that makes us love an outlaw.
3: Basically, every political party in the United States that has gained power is basically saying the the folks before did it awful and we're going to do it better. We're going to yeah. drain the swamp or we're going to, we're going to make it better or we're going to undo what they did. This is the song every single That's time. is the
0: song and dance of every political candidate forever.
3: And now our suspicions are growing even worse and we're sus- subsequent generations are going to most likely be even more suspicious of politics. Yeah. from not Wh- that sides. wild that we just keep biting the same hook? Yeah, And that's the irony of the quote unquote enlightenment and progress is in a way we make these leaps and bounds forward, but in another way as humanity, it seems like we've just developed more intricate ways to not trust one another. And then we're left with heroes that live in kind of a gray area. If you look at our stories, like the kind of the the stories and the songs that we sing as a culture, our heroes are broken. Mm. Uh, whether we we like it or not because we can identify with that.
0: The irony of modernity and progress is that we may have cars, nice houses, and fancy clothes, but continue to be utterly lost in finding ways to unite for the common good. Now, that's an interesting thought. I had another question for Dr. Dan. I should have asked him about his mama, but I didn't. So, is there... Is there anything
3: redemptive and valuable inside of revering an outlaw? Definitely. So you've at least got two things that are very valuable inside revering an outlaw. One is the systems that we are all a part of are imperfect. And so we don't want to accept those or live within those without stepping outside of them and looking at them. So revering an outlaw, he's the
0: guy that's on the outside, that's looking back, that's that has the the gall to
3: really call out the system. Yeah. So in a sense, you're gaining objectivity. You know, you're, you're gaining a... Even though or, it's a far pendulum swing. Sure. Like, I'm not going to
0: go kill a bunch of turkeys.
3: Someone that calls us, there's a way to live that's outside the system, helps people that are within... Well, society is made of systems. So the problem isn't that we have systems. The problem is that we have systems that we're in that we're not aware is, of. Is Is this a... A healthy thing inside of a democracy where the
0: idea is that the people rule, the people make law. And so you would have these periphery of people and there'd be some people outside
3: of that circle that would be constantly challenging the system. So in a sense, a democracy would be a conglomeration of outlaws. So they they these this conglomeration, this mob of people get together and together they decide on a set of rules usually the least limiting rules possible to maintain a certain amount of social order on which at a day to day basis they can go about and do whatever they want. So they want the least amount of interference from the state as possible. Yeah. But they want enough interference that it's not total chaos. If you just pop out of the box and your whole you're gonna obey the
0: rules like without question. And this is a gray area, man big time gray area because we're supposed to obey the rules the rules are what makes it safe i believe that that's the way i live but there comes a point when the rules and many times throughout history where where the rules were bad and it took breaking laws
3: to get the thing back on track and that's this i said there are two things that are valuable that's the second thing the system most often in some way shape or form needs to be pushed
0: I want to put this discussion into context. We're now looking out far beyond the boundaries of wildlife violators, back to my original big question of why we revere outlaws. We're not saying that people need to violate game laws so that agencies will make game laws more just. Nope. We're now talking about outlaws as an archetype and their general function inside of a democracy. Now that we got that cleared up, let's take the discussion back to the Edwards brothers for one final analysis. I think this sums it up for me.
3: In a sense, it's almost as if these two men... Full on went after whatever they were doing. And they thought those mountains were their home and what was in those mountains belonged to them. And who's this foreigner coming from outside or this person that I might know personally and respect, but enacting foreign laws like from a different spot to come in and tell me? what I can do with these turkeys or what I can do at this particular time of year, I'm not going to stand for that. And so I'm going to do what I think is right. And what I also think is right is loving my family and loving my neighbors. And by the way, what I also think is right when that person prank calls me, I'm not going to stand for that. And yeah. I'm going to go full on. You yeah. know, I think the, another thing that's very appealing about these outlaws like this and, and these two gentlemen, maybe in particular is just their. They're kind of – they're full-on nature. Every single thing that they did, they seem to go all the way at. Man,
0: that – I keep going back. And they
3: threw themselves into it. And I think one of the big – that's one of the things that probably makes them the most human. When we look at them we see them outside the system, they're not just outside the game and fish laws. They're outside normality in that most people we know don't full-tilt – throw themselves into everything. Well, why it, it, we're we're not doing that. And I think one of the realities of the industrial revolution is that we become a cog in the wheel and we kind of accept our fate mm, and we just go about life and mm, we do our and we pay our mortgage and we and deep down we know that life is supposed to be more than that. And so one of the things that we see mm, when we look at an outlaw is not just somebody who's outside the system or above the law or going against corrupt power. We see a person that gives everything they got. That's going for it. And we that, love that. And that is... We all want to be that. We all want to be that because as an artifact, that's what we were made to be. We were made for Man, more than just that, a cog in the
0: wheel. That The way I described it was that their sense of identity was very strong. I'm very interested in identity. Very interested in people that live out the functionality of their identity in accurate ways. Not to say that their version of who they were was accurate. I look at those guys and I admire their certainty and I admire their, how they functionalize their identity. And I think that the genuine nature in which they functionalize their identity was powerful and and I took some heat for it, but it's like a
3: template for like, I want to be, I want to be that certain. Well, it's it's revolutionary to not let society or the world define you. Now, everybody in our day and age is, you know, define yourself and become your authentic self. The problem with the vast majority of people is if you lay that question before me and say, Hey, well, you can go ahead and define yourself, deep down that's super disconcerting because I have no idea who I'm supposed to be or who I am. Right. But when you look at people like Louis Dale and Charlie, they appear to, now it may have been imperfect. Yes. But they appear to have known who they were, and they would not allow the system to define themselves, and wh- whatever aspect of who they were in whatever realm, they would go full on after that's, it. That's why people love them. And that's why people love them.
0: Man, what a discussion. This one really summed it up for me. We've been on a wild ride as we got behind the veil with undercover agent Russ Arthur, Who I am forever grateful to as we learned about the sting operation by the Forest Service. We learned how Louis Dell's strong community alliances helped him evade the law. And we finally answered the question I've been after this whole time. We love outlaws because of an innate distrust of power that's deep inside the Western worldview. And that spurs a desire for the common man to stick it to systems of power that we deem unjust. This outlaw archetype can play itself out in the big picture or the small picture and in any part of our life. As we come to a close, I'm perplexed and enamored by human nature. I love guys like Russ Arthur who have dedicated their lives to enforcing just laws and protecting wildlife so that all of us have an opportunity to have great experiences in wild places. Law and order are what have made this country what it is, and these are admirable folks. And in the exact same breath, an artifact of my past makes me somewhat hat-tip to the outlaw archetype. Not wildlife violators, not poaching. Those actions we outright reject, but the hat-tip is because of the role the outlaw has played in human history. Most of our heroes are in some way outlaws that stood against a prevailing system of unjust power. Most of these people would have been considered criminals at their time, but they're now heroes. Many stories of men recorded in the Bible were textbook outlaws. Now this is some metaphorical stuff, but metaphors are powerful medicine when used correctly. But in my best image of myself, I'm an outlaw against the negative trends of the age. In every generation, there are things that push society, and I think quite intentionally, to be something that is ultimately detrimental to society. Whether it's patterns that degradate family structures, degrade our collective work ethic, our integrity, or push us to distrust people different than us. The trend of the age has told us that spirituality is primitive and outdated, as an example, which I outright reject. I'm always interested in pulling something positive from the stories we tell on this podcast, and I think these real stories of our past are important for our future. My, oh my, I can't thank you enough for listening to the Bear Grease Podcast. I truly thank the Edwards family and their friends for so generously opening up the stories of their family to us and trusting us. I truly hope that this produces good stuff for all involved because these stories are meaningful and valuable to me personally as these men influence my life and continue to do so. We look forward to meeting with you again next week on the Bear Grease Render. Please leave us a review on iTunes and share some of this stuff on social media and share the Bear Grease podcast with one of your hillbilly or yuppie friends this week. Ever need something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Here's a simple but meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. A digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pictures of all the things that they can't be there for, from family vacation to their grandkids' graduation. My parents are always asking for sports photos of my son who plays basketball. A lot of the games, they aren't able to make it. It comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame, So you can upload as many photos as you want, and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. I have an Aura frame, and so does Juju, my mom, and they love it. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. For a limited time, listeners can get $20 off their best-selling frame with code BEAR. That's A-U-R-A, frames.com, promo code BEAR. Terms and conditions apply.